Welcome back to Inspiring Neighbors Podcast, where we showcase seemingly ordinary people with extraordinary stories. On today's episode, we hosted Merit Minimeyer. She is the founder and CEO of Master of One Coaching. She's also a professional certified coach. She says a recovering actor, also a writer and an international speaker. She has an amazing sense of humor, which we got to know a bit as we went through a really packed journey of, of her life. Um, it was just a thought it was kind of like five episodes packed into one, uh, just because of the broad variety of topics and perspectives we got into and just had so much fun throughout. You said it well, it was like five episodes packed into one. <laughs> if she's not famous, she needs to be. It was amazing. We talked about overcoming loss. She's had tremendous loss in her life. We've talked about her studying acting and theater and how that has led to other things in her life. Um, we talked a lot about finding purpose. Mm -hmm. It was kind of an overarching theme that we we found throughout the episode. Uh, and her ideas based on that are spectacular. Uh, we talked about adoption, entrepreneurship. It's just a, a masterclass in an episode. And with that, please enjoy Merit Minimeyer. Let's talk to our neighbors, because everyone can inspire. The Inspiring Neighbors Podcast Light Your Fire. To start with, um, maybe your parents. You said you were you grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. Can you tell us about that a bit? Yes, absolutely. So I have two different but very connected sets of experiences around entrepreneurship in my family. The first okay. being my my parents, my father and mother, who ran a small what I would call a design and build firm on the main street of my hometown, which is Carmel, California. And oh, cool. my father was an architect and my mother ran the business side and did some of the interior design. And wow. so, so I grew up, I, you know, people say they grew up playing in a sandbox. I say I grew up playing, playing in a pile of sawdust. I, I, that's yeah. my favorite smell in the world still is the, the smell of sawdust. And I was always on the job site and it, it's, it's still one of my very favorite things to do is to, to be on a job site and watch things come mm -hmm. to life from, from plans. Um, yeah. And so my parents and I came home, you know, off the bus, actually not home, but I came off the bus into my little town and walked across the street and grabbed a cookie and went up the stairs and then hang out in my dad's office or my parents' office where I would, you know, see clients come in and out and watch them, watch him draw and watch my mom do bookkeeping and talk to clients and, oh, cool. you know, do pay the bills and all that. Mm -hmm. And that was true until I was 12 or so. And then my, my parents split up and my father kept going with his business and was a solopreneur uh, for, okay. the, for the remainder of his life. My mother then, after a couple of years of trying to figure out what she wanted to do, she went back and started working for my grandfather. And my grandfather was a self-made um, captain of industry himself. He started out on the assembly line during World War II, uh, making planes, making aircraft. Oh, cool. And then, um, and I'm not I'm totally clear on this series of events. I'd have to ask my cousins because they know it better than I do. But through a series of events, he ended up working his way up through, I think it was that company. I'm pretty sure it was that company. And then either bought that company or bought another one that was a competitor or something like that. Okay. Anyway, rose to the ranks. Eventually became a fixer 
of companies. And so he would fly around the company, the country, excuse me. And he was a CEO interim would come in, fix things and then leave. And then in the seventies, he started his own business uh, called Stevens. What became Stevens international. It was a printing and is a printing and currency press business. And when I was growing up in the eighties and nineties, what the business did was design and deliver printing and currency presses and the presses that were as big as a house, you know, they're huge giant, you know, and they also yeah. did, so we did currency, we did cereal boxes, we did um, all kinds of web printing, meaning that it was on a web, not internet. Mm-hmm. And I got to go to the Bank of England and meet the president of the Bank of England because we were printing notes for the Bank of England. Oh, and we, wow. had, we did some, yeah, when I was like, I think 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to trade shows in Germany. Um, we traveled, we got to travel a lot and around the country as well. And then in the 90s, desktop publishing became a thing and debit cards became a thing and the tides turned and my grandfather became older. And so the business has changed quite a lot. And mm-hmm. also in that time, my family was falling apart. It was just me at home. I was the only child, my mom and dad, but I have three siblings from my dad's previous marriage. And so I was left with it, kind of a view of being an only child looking around at all the adults and saying, what's, what's going on, you guys? Like, it was so great. Yeah. And then it wasn't anymore. And everything kind of collapsed all at once, yeah. not all at once, but over a couple of years, few years. Mm-hmm. And not, not just the business, but the relationships collapsed. Right. And, and it really didn't ever really recover. And just mm-hmm. actually just recently I'm doing, I, it's been wonderful. I've been reconnecting with my cousin's, and my uncle and aunt in a way that I haven't in decades. And that's been a real oh, gift. So we've been actually been able to uh, get closer again after years and years. And I'm really, really cherishing that. How old were you when this was? Uh, when all that happened? Yeah, when it was kind of falling apart. Yeah. So well, my parents split when I was 12. And then, so that that's fell apart almost immediately, right? I mean, that business, yeah, he yeah. became then trying to, and then he went through a series of like, and I'm going to say con, we have errors, but it wasn't really funny. I mean, he just went decision after bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. Right. Uh, and just didn't have a head for business. You know, he was a, mm-hmm. a an architect and a tortured artist and a genius, yeah. quite literally, a m- member of Mensa. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happened to me. <laughs> no, I, I am not. Um, but he, you know, really struggled for the rest of his life uh, to, to maintain um, an income and maintain relationships. And he passed away thir- uh, 11 years ago now. And then my grandfather and well, my grandmother, my grandmother certainly was just as essential to the business as my grandfather was. She was the quote, the woman behind the man and quote, but of course, you know, was integral in the success yeah. of him and the company, and the family. And yeah. I also grew up watching that, right? Her doing the dinner parties and going to the galas and yeah. and hosting the you know the cocktail parties and the very you know beautifully designed second home in Palm Spring. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a, a whole thing, right? Yeah. And then about the time I went to college, is when it started to kind of fall apart for yeah. me. And then my cousins were much older, and they all worked in the business. My two cousins, my aunt, and uncle, or my uncle, my mom, I never did. So okay. it was a much more dramatic turn of events for them because their whole livelihoods are still connected to the business. And my cousins are actually running it with my uncle and aunt now and are still uh, doing well. I mean, they're, they're, they've, they've managed to turn it into a really solid 
um, the much smaller, but really solid business as it is now. So okay. kudos to them for doing that. Um, mm-hmm. As a reactive teenager, what I did was I look around and said, you guys are all nuts and you're all mad at each other and me and terrible to each other and not being nice to me, not my, mm-hmm. because my parents were fighting and, you know, and so it must be money. That's the problem. That's, right. that's what my teenage brain did. Yeah. And so I set out to be an actor. So I wouldn't make any money. <laughs> and I would, I wouldn't have up. that problem. Right. I, would, I wouldn't have that problem. Uh, that's good. <laughs> it's awesome. Did you, is that what you studied? Acting? Yeah. Wow. I went to NYU for acting. Um, graduated in three years with my Bachelor of Fine Arts in acting. And, uh, Holy. And yeah, I came out 20 years old and still didn't really know my backside from my elbow. And, um, but was determined to make my way, you know? So yeah, didn't, it wasn't long before I was, guess what? Creating my own company with some partners. Right. Oh. <laughs> and I didn't even make the connection. I didn't, was like, well, you know, I, I totally did not even see the connection at all. I was like, hmm. uh, it's just normal for you. In this it is, yeah, totally. This totally. Yeah. Of course I'm going to do that. You bet. Of course. Right. It just went right in and yeah. I'm like, well, I don't, I don't want to beg anybody else for a job. Why would I want to do that? I want to make my own work. <laughs> Exactly. Um, Yeah. It's a good example of, sorry, I was just going to say it's a good example of like growing up and whatever you grow up, it becomes your normal. Angela and I have talked about um, being employees and working for people. And for me, it's always like, that was normal for me. And you don't, Mm -hmm. it's not safe out there to go and create your own thing. It's more safe just to go work for somebody you get the paycheck and the benefits and it's yeah steady, like it, right? it's, it's unsafe or not it's like you're going out of the norm by doing that right. like mm-hmm. it's a very clear going out of the norm as opposed to like for you it seems like it's a different norm growing exactly, up and, yeah. and then so it's yeah. interesting hearing the other side it's, 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 I, I really appreciate how you put that because it's like we, we, we always stay where we're comfortable unless we make a conscious decision not to right so I was actually yeah. unconsciously just doing what I do or what everybody has already done around me that's actually right. and, and yeah so I didn't but I didn't think about it I was just like well that's just I mean I, I did try to get jobs I tried to tent and wait tables and mm-hmm. um still say that I'm a terrible employee I'm a, I really am and I and I, I wish I worked better because I, th- I think my life would have been a lot easier in some respects if I had learned how to do that and I will say now actually after being my own really my own boss for the last mm-hmm. five years like legitimately my own boss. I have a much higher uh, sense of myself and how I work. So I think that would that I go back and to be in an employment situation, which I might do, or, or I might go in partnership with I have a couple of things out right. there that are kind of cookie. Like, well, maybe I'll go in partnership with somebody or maybe I'll become somebody's, you know, uh, come and lead something for somebody else for a little while and kind of give, take the pressure off of me, maybe for a little bit, mm-hmm. something that's aligned. That I yeah. think that I would be able to communicate and say, here's what I know I need to be successful, and here's why I don't, here's why I'm not successful. And so if we can make this work in this way, then I think I can serve you well. If not, then I won't serve you well. I just know myself well enough to know that. Gotcha. That's right. Amazing. So when you went into acting to study acting, was it something that you always had a bit of an itch for? Or did you was it just I don't really know what to do, so I'm gonna go do this? Well, I'll say this. I, I always did it. It was so there you are again. It was something okay. I was always doing. I was in gymnastics from the time I was three and that wasn't terribly talented. I was very determined. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my co- my coach said, and I said this is a story of my life. My coach said to me, Well, she's not the most talented person, 
but she's the hardest working and she's the right. most, she's the most committed. I'm like, yep, that's yeah. pretty much me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, and that was true. I mean, I was four when he was saying that, right? So, um, <laughs> so sorry, when oh you say God. it was four, like, I don't, I guess it wasn't conscious. Do you think it is conscious? Like you knew you were working hard and you're going out of your way to work hard? I'm just, you, I'm just somebody who you can't tell me to, if someone tells me I can't do something, I'm going to prove them wrong. That's, yeah. that's, mm-hmm. that's the, that's the, so, so that, that's, it's a reactive thing, which isn't totally mm-hmm. healthy, obviously, but I've got that sort of tuning. Yeah. And yeah. Um, much to the chagrin of my parents, I think. Because <laughs> I, I don't think I was the easiest child. Uh, and my children have now, you know, it's come full circle, so I get what I deserve. But um, uh, at any rate, at any rate, uh, so, but, so I, I was on a stage doing that gymnastics dance from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I used to, my mom took me to the, the Nutcracker every year in the San Francisco Ballet. And mm-hmm. I would, I remember being three or three, or maybe three years old, there's a picture of me and I was holding up, we had a nutcracker, or, you know, on our hearth. Yep. And I would, mm-hmm. I would, I was Clara and I was dancing on our fireplace hearth, which was probably, you know, three by two, but I was little, so it was big enough yeah. for me. And I would, yeah. you know, this kind of thing, <laughs> like back and forth. And my parents would go, Yay! you know, um, very indulgent. And yep. so something about that cycle of validation, performance equals validation and praise Mm-hmm. That I think I was hooked on very early. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I found yeah. that I could get it through performing. So then right. I became very active in theater, mostly school theater and dance, recitals, singing, uh, took piano. Again, mm-hmm. not the most talented, but very determined. Because I was because I was so committed to it, and because I felt like I was not an academically a superstar. I, I did well in school, but I did not do as well as some of my my colleagues who were uh, my peers who were intellectually superior to me in, in mm-hmm. academically anyway. And so I was like, well, I'm an artist kid, so I'm going to do that the best I can. Right. Yeah. And when I got to college, I had an advisor say, you know, only really pursue this if you have to, oh my because goodness. it's really hard. It's really, really hard. Yeah. So if you don't have to, don't do it. And yeah. Now, what he meant was you have to because it's in your soul and it's something that yeah. you must do to fulfill your life's purpose, right? But that's gotcha. not, I didn't okay. have that connection. What I heard was I have to because it's the only thing I know how to do. Out of necessity, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's how I understood it when you said it. And was... Yeah. And so I felt very trapped into it because it was like, well, this is the only skills that I have. And, yeah. and hooray, it's one that won't make me any money probably unless I become a star, <laughs> which I didn't really want. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was, it was, it was a, it was a catch 22 for me. I became um, very frustrated and burned out very quickly, but also desperate. Cause I didn't have an identity outside of the theater for, for most of my a childhood and young adult years. Right. And the yeah. company you started when you came out of that, was it a theater related company? Yeah, it was. So, uh, credit where credit is due. So that the person who his brainchild, it was, his name Jonathan Bessler, and he started a company called Myriad Arts Productions in 1997. Um, okay. And it's a multimedia production company. So we did, but I, and I was a founding partner. So we did um, film, uh, music videos, industrials, and theater. And then oh, cool. got into a uh, web series a little bit later. So I was gotcha. in a web series for them about 10 years after we started. Yeah, 2009, I think is when it was, maybe eight. Oh, cool. And that's about the time I sort of bowed out. But uh, yeah, yeah, so 
but I was a founding partner and I was the, the head of theater. And so I, I was the producing arm of all the theater productions we did. And we had gotcha. festivals that were huge in scope in terms, I mean, we did short films and, um, and short plays of new, new artists. And they mm-hmm. were within our little context of, you know, being off, off Broadway and pulling ourselves by our little suspenders, <laughs> our <Yeah>. rainbow suspenders <laughs> yeah. in theater, uh, that, you know, it was, they were, they got pretty successful over the, over the couple of years that we ran three, three or four years we ran it. So yeah, it was fun. Well, that sounds very cool. What yeah. was the artistic freedom like at that point, since you are at, at that level of the community, the, the boss, let's say of the company? Oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. I've never been asked that before. That's what a, a great question. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's entirely free. I think that, you know, probably with delusions of grandeur, we found ourselves, we, we, we thought of ourselves as having a great responsibility to showcase the, the talent that was emerging, you know, young talent mm-hmm. that was emerging. Um, at that time in Broadway, there was a ton of revivals of like Oscars and ha- Oscar Hammerstein or, um, you know, some of the old, which was, it's all great, but like there wasn't a lot of new work coming out at that time. And so we were all kind of right. feeling like, where, where's our place in this? And a lot of us were studying experimental theater, which had come out of a lot of the 60s and 70s, but like, where is the place for that now? And the, you know, as it turned into the new millennium and, um, so we were asking a lot of questions about what is theater? Yeah. What is it be? What is it? What is it to be a theater practitioner in the 21st century? And I think we took it very seriously to, to try to answer some of those questions. And I think probably thought we were pretty important in doing so. <laughs> I'm not sure how we mm-hmm. really were important. We were, but, <laughs> uh, and so we were, and we were flooded, flooded, with submissions for the festivals, absolutely inundated. And which is wonderful, you know, and read through a lot of not so great stuff and a lot of stuff that we could say, okay, well, this isn't perfect, but we can see where the potential is. So how do we put a great director here, a great actor here and bring out some of the potential, let this writer, let this director, let this producer, let this costume designer, let the stage manager find their footing on their, because we, we weren't, you know, I mean, we weren't, getting paid much of anything. I think we paid ourselves maybe 50 bucks or something, mm. but, but we, so we knew that it was like, we were going to be incubating artists in the early stage of their career just to, to go on and do amazing things. And they have, many of them have. Yeah. So that's, it's really exciting. And, and it was such a gift and we did take it very seriously, but also there was a total freedom, absolute 100% total freedom. No one telling us what to do. No one telling us how to do it, which was a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways. Um, just being scrappy, you know. Yeah. You mentioned growing up around money, you kind of tried to go the other way or you maybe subconsciously went the other way and tried not to yeah. <laughs> focus on money, I'll say. Uh, at this point, when you're running this theater, were you were you making decisions based on that or were you still very open to I, this is, I'm doing this to put people out there and create great things. And whether yeah, well, not, money was not a concern. Money was an afterthought for sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I Amazing. mean, it, it, because we didn't even now in full disclosure, I was being somewhat supported. So, I mean, I also had a job, so I was working yeah. and all of us had jobs. So we were all working to pay mm-hmm. our bills. And also I was blessed to have a family who could, you know, spot me a few hundred bucks if I needed to pay groceries or the electric bill or what have you. So I'm not going to be like, oh, yes, I was, you know, st- totally struggling. I mean, it was struggling in the sense that, like, we weren't we weren't living on the penthouse and therefore aside, but money was never, I mean, we just didn't think there was any 
any potential of making any money. So we didn't even mm-hmm. consider it. All we considered was, is the budget going to work to make this show work? And I imagine kind of going back to what Angela said, the artistic decisions or the creative decisions were much better when you weren't making it out of a place of how much are we going to make with this decision? Well, I don't know. I think that that's a, I'm not sure how much better they were because when you have a lot of money, you can do some amazing things. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you can yeah. build uh, incredible sets. You can hire the best talent. You can, right. Right. I mean, you can also afford to have, take a risk and you can afford to fail a little bit depending on what the show is, you know, depending on what the endeavor is. Yeah. So I think that my, I will say immature view of money at that time was money was evil and it destroys relationships. And so we want yeah. to stay away from it. But sure, we would have loved to have had millions of dollars in budget to to pay people what they were worth and what they deserve. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, I think that as I mature in my business now, and I often say that when I pivoted from not because I worked in nonprofits for 20 plus years, and mm-hmm. then I finally made the decision that I didn't want to be a nonprofit organization myself anymore. Mm-hmm. And what I'm <laughs> what I really am embracing now is that the more money that is in the hands of people who care, who want to do right by other people on the planet who want to move our society and culture forward, that's where they get that. I mean, the more money we have in hands of people like that, the more good we can do. Yeah. So money equals impact, whether and it, it doesn't have an inherent value. It's the value we put on it. So, mm-hmm. so I'm all about making money now, but not for the sake of it, but rather for the sake of the impact that we can all have. Can you, you just said something that made me, set up a little bit you said money doesn't have value it has or inherent value it's the value that we put on it can you explain that Mm -hmm. a little bit yeah well so i mean it's a made-up system Mm -hmm. right it's i mean it's really anybody who's going to see hamilton (laughs) they know the bank is made up and you know it it was first made of you know rocks and shells or it was made of livestock and and uh produce right or it Mm -hmm. was made of um, people, mm-hmm. right? We're trading people, but ultimately yeah. we decided the system where there is this thing called money, mm-hmm. and it represents something of value to us. But money yeah. is—I mean, it's just paper. It's just—and yeah. really now it's just numbers on a screen more than anything else, which is kind of terrifying, yeah. frankly. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I can look at five hundred dollars and go, "Oh, God! Thank goodness I have five hundred dollars this month. I can take care of everything I need." Or I could look at that $500 and go, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I only have $500. I'm never going to be able to take care of everything I need. Yeah. It depends on, it's not even depends on so much how much we have. I mean, responsibilities, certainly. But money isn't out there doing its thing on its own. It's only the energy we put, only the value we put on it, only the intention we put behind it, um, only how we behave with it. It doesn't behave by itself. It behaves the way we tell it to behave. Wow. It's interesting. It's a very cool perspective, and I love it. And now, for for that to to happen, you need to have some sense of like a purpose and identity to then express that through the money that you have, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yes. to, Ho- to, hopefully, you need to hopefully, have a basis, yeah. hopefully, of like I guess whatever your uh, your actions are with the money reflects that sense of correct values or purpose or, or yeah, impact that you have in mind. And I think about what you're talking about in the theater company. It doesn't sound like you're optimizing for money, but maybe could it be that you're optimizing for like purpose? Because it sounds like you're like fostering a community where everybody is going to start feeling like they're doing something that matters. Yes. And yes. That, that, that was exactly amazing. right. That's, that was exactly right. 
Exactly right. Yeah. And I think that at some point though, when people, you know, they start pairing up with their, you know, their life partners or the people they're going to be with them for that certain amount of time and they start procreating and they want to have more stability that they say, okay, I can't do, I can't work for free anymore because I have these, I mean, I can, I could, and by the way, there are people who still work for free and they're in their midlife and beyond. It's because that's, as you just so beautifully put it, that is their priority. That's their fulfillment, their value. Whether it is something that we decide or that it's decided for us through cultural norms, right? We tend to, I would say the vast majority of people tend to, I would say evolve or mature. Maybe that's, that's maybe even too much of a value statement. Shift, well, shift gears into, into creating a stable, quote, stable life, end quote, whatever that mm-hmm. means. And so, I mean, you know, I think about like when, on Friends, when Monica and Chandler bought their house in Westchester, right? <laughs> and, uh, and bought, they had their babies, right? I mean, that, and, that's, and that's where the show ended because they shifted out of and their, the whole phase of that friendship that ended. So mm-hmm. people, people make those choices and then they start thinking they need it because in order to have the things that they're supposed to have or want to have, they need the money to make those things happen. But in the meantime, what's lost you know, and, and it could be, I mean, definitely there was a sense of community that I was a part of for many years that I chose away from. And I did that consciously. I got married and I chose to move across the country to Seattle with my husband, Peter, and we created a new community there, but there we didn't work for free. We didn't work for a whole lot of money, but we wouldn't work for free. We actually were like, okay, we're going to, we're going to make sure that we can get paid enough through our art to make it work. And we did that. We did that. And it meant some shifting some roles and it meant me moving into management a little bit in terms of nonprofit arts work and teaching more. And my husband got his equity card, which is the union for actors, uh, for stage actors. And so he got to be paid more because once he joined the union. So we had, but we had to make that conscious shift to do that, to make that, you know, right. Mm-hmm. We focused on that. To make, um, but not everybody does that. And there's still people, I still have friends who make work for free and we're old now. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they love it. So. Yeah, it's, it's a tough balance to strike, sort of between feeling like you're doing something with purpose and, and intention, and because you're doing something because you need to support yourself and you need to support the lifestyle that you want. And uh, it sounds like you know in this story, you're you're moving towards um, giving, getting more income. Actually, getting paid for the work that you're doing mm-hmm. is a good start. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you feel like you were being pulled away from the purpose as you did that? Or did you manage to balance that at that, that time? Um, well, I think, you know, I mentioned before that I really burned out because I wasn't, I, it was because I was doing this thing that I thought I should be doing or, or had to do because it was the only thing I knew how to do. Mm-hmm. And so I had a lot of resentment towards what I thought was my purpose. I was like, well, this mm-hmm. is my purpose. This is what I'm supposed <laughs> to be doing, but I hate it. <laughs> so yeah. that doesn't feel very good. Right. <laughs> Uh, and so I was like, really, I was important. My, my poor husband, my first husband, Peter, you know, he was a wonderful actor and performer and absolutely like that was the thing he loved to do most in the world was perform. And I was like, at one point I was like, you know, well, F this, I'm not going to the theater with you. He's like, but I want to go see a show. I'm like, no, I'm not going there. I hate that theater. Yeah. He's like, okay. <laughs> I hate theater. So, <laughs> so I had to find within myself some, some healing around that because I really, I gave my whole identity away to this thing called theater. Mm-hmm. And as I started moving towards working with kids and then 
finding other ways to employ arts uh, interventions and techniques to make the impact in the lives of others, that's when I started to really shift. Mm. Teaching really brought me back into a sense of purpose. And it started, I started to see arts as service and mm. arts as connection rather than arts as, oh, look at me, look at me, which is really a big part of why I was having such a hard time with it. I didn't, I remember saying at one point, like in my, I had a, a teacher and many wonderful teachers in college who didn't know what to do with me because I was like, one day I was, you know, on fire and so inspired. The next day I was like super grumpy and they're like, what is wrong with you? Um, <laughs> And they said, well, you know, you have to be more vulnerable. And I said, it's nobody's business what I'm feeling. And they're like, mm, you, you, you might want to rethink that approach if you're going to be an actor, right? <laughs> but once, so because I just felt so scrutinized and I felt like I was, I was, I loved certain moments. I love to be able to, you know, here's the thing. And I still say this out loud all the time. I'm, people ask me, oh, do you still do it? I'm like, no, I don't do it at all. I don't care to do it. I have no interest in doing it. But I, I, I still am on stage quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, because I feel very called to speak my own words and tell my stories right. so that p- other people can hear them and think maybe they can uh, draw some insight. They can draw some uh, ways to apply what I've learned and mm. all the b- bad decisions I've made and paid some dumb taxes so that they don't have to pay so many dumb taxes and make some decisions that are a little bit better than I made before. Right. right. So, um, or I can use some techniques that I have now to draw out somebody's inner wisdom or their inner beauty or genius or their voice, their expression, their, their own sense of inspiration. Mm-hmm. So when I started to make that shift from performer to educator is when I actually became more interested in re, kind of reconnected to my purpose in a new way. Right. And that, that sense of using my talents and gifts, mostly the one that says, don't quit, mm-hmm. <laughs> keep going says I can keep following my nose until I find the thing or things or let the things evolve and grow in front of me that really light me up and that, that are aligned with my, my deeper purpose. And I'm still working on that. That's not something that stops, you know, I don't think for most people. I'm still allowing it to evolve and it's taking different turns and twists. And that's really fun though, because now I found that I'm like in the river that I want to be in. Now I can take that rapid or this rapid or I can, you know, chill out for a little while or I can park my boat on the side and look for lizards or I can do whatever I want, but I'm in the right river, you know? So yeah. I love the way you said that. Yes. There's, we all, we often have this conversation as well. Angela and I with many guests about purpose and is it, is it something you ever find or is it something like you, the way you're talking about it, it's more of the journey towards that purpose that mm-hmm. is what lights your fire. And I resonate a lot with that because I think I'm still finding my purpose, but uh, what I am finding is things that I, al- I align with and that mm-hmm. bring joy to me on a daily basis. And maybe that's the purpose. Maybe that's the universal purpose is just finding well, those things. Joy is an incredible indicator that you're on the right track. <laughs> Truly. If, if it's something that brings you joy or fulfillment and or fulfillment, uh, you feel like you lit up inside, you get inspired, you get that, oh, right. Like you don't want to stop talking about the thing, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's a great indicator that you're in in or about around your sen- your true sense of fulfillment and purpose. Mm-hmm. And it, I do think it evolves. I do think that it it grows and it blossoms and it, um, it can be different things, you know. I also think that it isn't in one job or even one career. Right. I've seen... So many people 
so many clients and and people in my life who who took their skill set or things they love to do and they applied it in some different way and it still brought them fulfillment even though it was something that they didn't have any sense of before my godfather is a great example of this he is a really gifted jeweler hmm. and carpenter excellent with his hands like just really really has a gift for that yeah. and used to make beautiful jewelry and you know metal work and and also was a contractor and actually worked with my dad uh, as, mm-hmm. his, as a contractor for many years and I can't remember exactly. I think it was, you know, it was some, maybe it was a, during a golf round or something, but some, somebody came to him and said, Hey, what would you think about doing medical prosthetic work sales? Hmm. And he was like, what? Uh, oh, that's like how, like how out of the blue is that? Right. But I need yeah. a guy on my sales team. So maybe if you want to make some money, you can be on the sales team. And what he huh. found out was that he became the top guy in the company. And it's a big company, national company, mm-hmm. international company, I think. He can be the top guy for like a decade because wow. he was the one who understood how the things worked hmm. because of his time making jewelry and using small tools and looking, right? And yeah. and also making things and building things from plants. Like he could read a set of plans, schematics, and translate it into something real. Mm-hmm. And he understood the process. He understood the tools. He understood all of that. And so he just applied that knowledge and that process to medical prosthetics. And he made a boatload of money (laughs) in his like, I think he started that in his late fifties and it was, he didn't even, um, there was, I don't think he was even looking for it. I think it just kind of landed in his lap and he got a ton of fulfillment out of that for for years, for years and years. So, yeah. And, and, but talking about using your, your art to help, to help people. Right. So he would come and train doctors on how to, how to, train people to use their prosthetics and how to, how to put them in people's bodies so that they would be fit right and they would work right for those people. I mean, that's incredibly impact-driven work. So then what would you say in relation to that story, what would you say is, uh, I guess, the, the element of fate or destiny or even luck that plays on you finding your purpose? Is, is it a lot? Yeah, no, I, I don't really believe in luck. I believe in good fortune in terms of, you know, the, well, I want to be careful here because I've done a lot of work around, you know, diversity, and inclusion, social justice, my master's degree is in social justice education. So I, mm. I, I, I'm very aware of not yeah. everybody starts off with the same stuff. Back, the people who, like I said, even though my family was, you know, broken for m- most of my life and they were a mess in many, many respects, I, they still had my back in a lot of respects too. So right. that is not true for everybody. Mm-hmm. And also, and this is upsetting to some people, but I'm going to say it anyway. I do believe that somewhere along the line, our soul makes a decision to come in and, and live the life that we are going to live. I'm not saying it's predestined. All the things we're going to do are predestined. But I, I think we say, those that, those are the parents I need to teach me this lesson. This is the environment which I need to teach this lesson. And yeah. I don't subscribe to a certain religion about that. I just have that sense Mm-hmm. based on lots and lots of studying that I've done over the many, many years of decades. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you don't have to believe that, but you could, people would also say, well, God doesn't make mistakes, right? People say that too, or um, it was meant to be. I mm-hmm. I don't think it's chaos. I don't think it's random. I think that we have some sense of we're here to learn something and do something or a series of mm-hmm. things. And that we have a sense before we come in that, you know, we're, a, we're not a, physical person having a spiritual experience where a spiritual being having physical experience. Mm. And that was Wayne Dyer who said that. And, uh, 
So if we're going to have a physical experience, we need to have this body. We need to have these people, these teachers, these experiences, this environment. And then based on what we get in the beginning, we're going to make some, if we decide to become conscious about that, we're going to make some decisions that are going to be different or more alike, or, and we're going to seek out contrast. So that is to say, I'm going to seek out the contrast of, I'm going to go go to a really expensive school so I can learn something that's not going to make me any money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that's the contrast of like, oh God, this feels terrible. This feels terrible. That's contrast, right? I'm seeking that out as feedback from my environment, from the universe, from whatever other people to go, Ugh, I don't like that. So, that, so yeah. that's going to, if, if I'm conscious enough about that, I'm going to move into something that's going to make me feel better. Right. And at the end of the day, like I said earlier, joy is a great indicator. The better we feel, the closer we are to our alignment. And that doesn't mean getting drunk and popping pills and like medicating ourselves. What I mean is truly deeply connected to ourselves when we feel like, Oh, this is who I am. This is what makes me excited and fulfilled. I subscribe to that theory as well, that our soul comes here for an experience. Uh, Side note, have you read a book? I think it's called the little, the little soul and the sun. The little soul and the sun. Okay. I want you to read that and then send me an email on how you feel. Okay, cool. It's amazing. It's basic. It's based on that theory that you're here for an experience but uh, and your soul kind of decides to come for that experience that specific one you in your bio and um just through the chats that we've had you have i know that you have experienced some big loss in your life Mm -hmm. i'm curious to know during that loss were you aware of this what we were just what you were just mentioning about um needing to experience these things or did that uh, come after? Yes. Okay. I was very aware of it and it felt terrible. Yeah. I it felt absolutely imagine. terrible to be aware of it and to say, mm-hmm. or to think, and I never said it out loud to him while he was here. <laughs> I say it all the time now. Yeah. I talk to voices in my head. Uh, but at the time I was like, I knew there was a, well, we both knew that there was a purpose to it. He actually he suffered from uh, depression and anxiety for most of his life. Okay. And I watched him in the last year of it. So we were talking about my husband, Peter, who um, who died of brain cancer in 2012. And I watched him during the year of his treatment, which involved two surgeries and chemo radiation and lots of physical therapy and steroids, which are the worst and Mm. just like all kinds of horrible, horrible things. I watched him shed a whole lot of his anxiety and depression because there wasn't anything to worry about anymore. It was all just, it was all going to hell. So, okay. And there was this sort of a deep acceptance that I witnessed in him. And in that process of accepting, he also wrote a one man performance uh, with original music that I produced and a friend of ours directed one of those friends who I told you we did the free theater back and she, so there's another example of this, that community that stays with you, right. Or through values and through shared passion. Uh, And she, she came and she directed the show and we presented it at several conferences for students, college and high school students. And the idea was to take it on the road. And once he got better, that was the idea, right. They were Mm going to take it on the road. We're going to take it across the country to hospitals for patient advocacy and, um, and healthcare uh, uh, provider sort of engagement and, and, and education. And uh, we had all these big dreams about this show. And it was all about the sense of the, the message of the show essentially was 
this is, you've got this life, live in this life, love who you love, do what you want to do. Don't let fear hold you back. And of course, he coming from a man who had largely he'd done some amazing things, but by his own admission would say that fear had held him back quite a lot right. from, from, from pursuing some things that he really wanted to do and always worrying, always worrying, always worrying. Right. So, uh, so yeah, so, so he recognized that sense of purpose, not quite immediately, but pretty, pretty closely after diagnosis. Right. And I knew maybe not quite immediately, but pretty close after diagnosis too, that there was something that was profound and important about what was happening um, for both of us and for our kids. And I could not say, I didn't think I did say something like, this is really important. And this is, there's going to be so many good things that are going to come out of it. I did say that to him and it is to encourage him to do his, his show. And, and to, and he also was doing a lot of writing and put, posting a lot of his writing up online and, mm-hmm. and he was teaching too still. And, and we were letting the students in on the process, you know, not, not oversharing, but they couldn't not know. I mean, it was obvious that he was sick. So, um, so there was a very deep sense of something is happening here that is important to pay attention to and that this is going to be the catalyst for some really powerful learning. And I think we had a version of that that I was thinking I was going to see through at the time. And I, you know, talked to people about starting a foundation and, and even, um, you know, kind of furthering his work and ultimately decided that that was not the way that I wanted to go right. after he passed. And I don't think that he would have wanted me to go that way, frankly. Mm-hmm. I think that it was your life being about brain cancer. One year is plenty. Yeah. <laughs> for me, it was yeah. anyway. And certainly for him, there was a profound acknowledgement on both of our parts of something really big is happening here. And I don't mean big in the sense of like, we're going to go and like, we're, we're more important than other people. I don't mean that. I just mean that there was it was powerful learning to be had here. Mm-hmm. And it also felt connected to other things that we saw happening in the world. I mean, I was very much involved in my social justice career at the time. He was, you know, teaching college and high school kids. He taught at a school for kids with dyslexia and other language-based learning differences. And so we were in the trenches with people who were having everyday struggles, you know, Uh, and we were also, um, at the time that he was diagnosed, we had our oldest son who was five at the time, uh, six, sorry, six, and our twins who were from the foster care system and they had some very significant special needs. Mm. And so we were also living that life. And it was oh like, gosh. there's something that's just, it just felt like a cosmic shift was happening. Yeah. And but it was, the, whoa, it was hard. <laughs> it was really hard. I can't even imagine yeah. the, the knowledge of, how do I say it? Having the knowledge of these things, there may be a reason for these things happening. Did that help at all with the grieving process? Or did it, was it just kind of two separate things? This is happening for a reason, but also this is terrible and it hurts a lot. Yes, that was that. (laughs) Yeah, it was the yes and. Yeah. I think too, there was another thing. I mean, there was something about the the purpose of his work, the purpose of what I was going to, what the work was going to turn into for me. Mm-hmm. And a purpose of our, so that was kind of bigger than us, right? And then yeah. there was the the tier of the children who yeah. needed to be taken care of and who I was really struggling to show mm-hmm. up for. Um, and thank God they were there. And it was a mess. It was a total mess for a long mm-hmm. time. And we were able to get through it. And now we're doing very well. Thank goodness. Not going to wait. Um, <laughs> and... 
there's also from from my personal standpoint, I mentioned I, I, I referred to earlier, like you know, it's not anybody's business how what I feel. Yeah. Through which I won't get into all the reasons why, but there through several traumas that I endured as a child and early a young adult and adolescent, I had become very adept at dissociating. I was very good right. at it. Yeah. And that grieving process pulled me into my body like nothing ever had before. Uh, I, I remember the, I actually remember the day that happened like really profoundly. I got pulled into my body in a way that I never had before. And it was maybe a year and a half, almost two years after he died. Mm-hmm. And I was sent a, um, so he and I, when we were in Seattle, we uh, were staying at a choir and so this lovely group of people who we just adore and the choir had heard of his passing and yeah, we hadn't seen each other in years, but they sent me a recording of a song that they, they sang for him in his honor. Oh my God. And I played it and I just dropped to the floor. Yeah. I mean, and like uncontrollably dropped to the floor. I had no control over my body. I just, it was like, uh-huh. and it, that was really the moment that I was like, Oh my God, I'm alive. <laughs> Which is, it was such a strange thing to feel because I was, yeah. So I was in my most broken. Yeah. It was, it was, it was beyond anger. It was beyond bargaining. It was beyond all the stages of grief. It was like the rock bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet I felt also realized that in a moment that I was supported and loved and he was too, and that I, we had all of this support around us, even from across the country. And it just was able to let that in, in that moment. And that really sh- changed my life wow. and how I live my life from that point forward. It wasn't obvious all at once, but it became a sense of like, oh, I'm, oh, this is me. I'm I'm here. I'm in this body. I'm in this, okay, like I'm awake in this body, right? Which I I don't think I really had been for maybe decades. Holy cow. Yeah. What a powerful thing for them to do. Probably they underestimated the power of what they were about to send you. I mean, maybe uh, they're a pretty powerful group. I, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sure they didn't know they didn't know the timing of it necessarily, but uh, and you know, now that I'm saying this out loud, I should I need to call them and thank them. <laughs> I did write them a little note, but I was like, I think that you know, ten years later, I'm like, oh my gosh, that was really that was the moment. Yeah. Holy cow! So then, how do you pick yourself up after that? Like, what is how do you go from that rock bottom that you just described? To now having a kind of a new outlook and rebuilding yourself. Uh, well, I employ many, many tactics, <laughs> and I would say the one, two things that were the most um, effective. One was a gratitude practice, which sounds very trite now. I mean, people talk about this all the time now, but truly, neurologically speaking, we know that the brain cannot hold resentment and gratitude in the same moment. Right. So. If we focus on gratitude, we focus on what brings us joy, which isn't how we're necessarily wired to default to. But if we start mm-hmm. fo- focusing on it, that's the more we cultivate that and the more we see it, the more we can actually experience it because we're bringing our, our attention to it. Right. So that was one thing. Uh, it was a very deliberate and actually it was started by a, a girl, a woman I went to grammar school with. Hmm. I saw her posting online about her gratitude, like November gratitude. And I was like, you know what? That's what I'm going to start with. And so I started doing that. I real writing every day, just, you know, and I, I'm posting a little bit every day about what I'm grateful for and kind of my observations. And so that was one thing. It just became a, a practice, even when yeah. I didn't feel like doing it. I, I knew mm-hmm. that that was it. And then the other thing was 
as an only child, or as a child who grew up as an only child, I'll say, I became convinced that I was alone. Mm-hmm. And I grew up very much alone in a lot of ways. Right. So the good news is I learned how to be extremely independent and self-sufficient. The bad news is I learned that that was, I thought that was the only way to be. So through the process of Peter getting sick and the community coming together to support us, I started learning that I not only do I have people, but I need people, which was a huge aha moment because I didn't right. want to need anybody. Yeah. But I came to the point at which I, I needed to need people. I didn't, I couldn't do it without them. Right. And so I started pulling people in who a little bit at a time and some people I paid, but I found the right people to pay and support us. Yeah. Um, two women who, who came into our life, who was like a part-time childcare support. And they would come in, even when I was there, they would just kind of help put kids to bed and yeah. do the dinner and, and call, you know, all these things just so that I had a partner for a couple yeah. hours a day. Yeah. And, and then friends who would come in and like, you know, take the kids or they would, they would take me to dinner or they would come over and bring dinner or they would get to, you know, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And it was just enough to get me feeling strong and, and not independent in a, I can do it kind of way, but I'm like, Oh no, I can, I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> right? I can do that. Uh, and sort of more at ease in, in my own, as an independent mom, a single mom right. uh, and who felt capable. Yeah. But it took a long time to build those. I mean, it was, it was brick by brick really. It's not the first time and it won't be the last that we hear the, how the power of gratitude um, mm-hmm. it's come up. It came up last weekend in an interview um, very similar. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say the way it, you said, the way you said it was you can't hold resentment and gratitude in, in your mind at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty powerful and I would say under appreciated fact that you, you can have control over what's in your mind. Yes. And if you choose the right things, it's it's very powerful. Mm-hmm. And people don't necessarily want to believe that because we tend to want to, it's easier when we have, feel like we've been done to, right? Yeah. And, and trauma does that too. Trauma makes that, trauma, trauma, and trauma doesn't mean anything necessarily big has happened to you, but this decisions we make based on circumstances that we're in or things we witness or things people say to us can be very small. Mm-hmm. But the wound, I heard this, um, uh, Gabor Mate said about the, the trauma comes from, um, I think it's Greek. I'm see, I'm not see, I'm not a genius, but <laughs> um, I think it's Greek, and it's the the word for wound, which is like the open wound, right? So it's something opens in us that is a wound, and then the trauma is the open wound. It's not something that it, it, it's not healed, and if we don't right. attend to it the way any other, we would attend to a physical wound because we're not very good at that in our culture, mm-hmm. attending to psychological, emotional wounds, psychic wounds. We're getting better. It's, it's coming along, but it's, mm-hmm. it's slow. And, um, and so the wound is open and the more the wound is open, then let the, the longer it goes without being healed, the more we believe that it's going to be open forever. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. Right. So then we'd like, Oh, I'm just going to walk around with one arm hanging off. And like, I don't, you know, Oh, I'm just, that must be the way I'm going to be for the rest of my life. Cause we don't, we don't know how to tend to that mm-hmm. spiritually and emotionally. So, um, what gratitude does is it brings the attention to the rest of our body, right? Not just the open wound, but the whole body, the whole system. Yeah. Yes, I may have a wound, but I'm also, I might, this arm might not be there, but the other one is, but my legs are here, but my head is here, my shoulders are here, my lungs are here, my heart is here, right? That's what gratitude does. Wow. So it's not negating the thing that's wrong. It's just putting more focus on the things that are right. Mm-hmm. You hinted yeah. at, um, when we're in like a slump or a funk, 
we we are almost it's more than we're comfortable being there it's almost that we want to stay there like there's parts of yeah. us that want to be there what is that like why do we do that in momentum a lot of the time <laughs> you know mm-hmm. uh it's and it's also where we tend to be comfortable it's really hard yeah it's really hard to pick yourself back up mm. I mean, honest to gosh, I, you know, I, I talk about this a lot, this sense of like being at the edge of the abyss. That's what I call it, the abyss. Like you can look over and go, oh yeah, I can jump off there and I wouldn't have to worry about this ever again. And I'm really yeah. real about that. Like that was, yeah, absolutely. Was I suicidal? Yes, I was. hundred mm-hmm. percent. Like, why wouldn't I be? Right. Yeah. Of course. And also I was in a dis-ease moment yeah. period of a few years actually. And I looked over the abyss and I went, oh wait, but I got kids back there. Yeah. Looking over at the abyss and saying, hey, I got kids back there. Oh, right. Damn kids. But they're mm-hmm. there. And and by the way, I chose them. I mean, I hardcore chose them. I didn't just yeah. say, hey, it's a good idea to have a kid. I went through years and years of process to make these three children my children, to get to right. be able to be the, the, to have the, the gift of them being my children. Right. And so I was not happy about it in that moment because it meant that I had to be responsible and I had to stand yeah. up. But I, I didn't want to gravity, right? It's just sure, the sure force of gravity. If you're on the ground, you want to stay on the ground. Yeah. And I think that's energetically true too. Um, when we are in the in the victim mindset, and I don't mean that oh, necessarily though I was at the time, but mm-hmm. but when we are in in a habit of believing that we have no agency in our life, mm-hmm. then that habit is very hard to break because it's not just breaking the habit, it's choosing new habits that you are to have agency. And that, I mean, that's the whole process of adolescence right there. Hopefully mm-hmm. some people never really go through that. Some people get stuck in a loop. I, was right? say, I think it goes further than that. <laughs> yeah. But that's, or, or if you get through a major wound and you feel like, well, it was done to me. And there is certain, the, the grief of being wounded is real. And that also needs to be attended to. Mm-hmm. Ow, it hurts. Yeah. I don't want to do anything. I need to heal. That is real. That's that. And that's to be attended to, which is something else we're not very good at. We, 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 I'm okay. Yeah. I'm okay. I don't, I don't need any help. Right. Yeah. But when we are knocked, then we get the wind knocked out of us for real and we need to stay in that spot or we just have kind of this like ever sort of cycling understanding somewhere in our operating system of, Oh, well, it's never going to get better. Oh, well, I'm never going to have what I really want. Oh, well, I'm never going to be able to have that thing. Oh, I'm never going to find love. Oh, well, I'm never going to be happy. Right. We start to Mm -hmm. believe that thing and a belief is just a thought we keep thinking. So it's a habit and mm-hmm. to other people will hear that and go, what do you mean? I'm not choosing this. Yeah, yeah we are. Mm-hmm. And that sucks to, to realize that it's, it's terrible because mm-hmm. it's like, then I have to take the responsibility of changing it. And that's really hard. It really yeah. is really hard. Yeah. And that's when we need to ask for help. All right. Yeah. Holy. Holy. So powerful. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned your work with diversity, equity, and inclusion and mm-hmm. you're, already doing this work at that time yeah so one thing that stands out to me is like the resentment versus gratitude pull must be tough when you're in in that world right of of seeing Mm. a lot of unfairness and Mm -hmm. and and just it is you to get caught up and be demoralized by that Um, oh yes so how's how's that been for you has that um work been for you in that sense yeah, I mean, so it, to, so present day is more applied to the way we teach our kids and how to be in the world as young black men, um, which is it's a big. That's something that we can only do as witness and as 
as best we can as white parents. We're never going to be able everything they need there. So, so we have there. So I have I have some deep resentment about the way the world is in relationship to young black people and young and men in particular. But I mean, to anybody who isn't, I shouldn't say world. That's not. It's not the whole world. It's it's the culture that we currently live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is it is changing. But uh, so that but that's where we get we try to stay out of resentment there because we want to believe everything is going to be awesome and we live in an amazing community who love our kids and. And they've had tons of support over the years. And so we feel extremely, extremely blessed and fortunate to have what we have. And also, uh, I mean, how many times do we have to hear that some kid has been shot walking down the street, minding his own business? Mm-hmm. How many times do we hear that before it becomes, you know, something that we need to change? And I have to have that conversation with my twins all the time. And, you know, unfortunately, the way you're behaving right now, even if you were with some other friends who didn't, who looked differently than you, who were white kids, you know, if your white friends were acting that way, they probably wouldn't cause too much of a stir. But because mm-hmm. you're the black kids acting that way, someone's going to get offended. Someone's going to get upset. Someone might call the cops on you, and then it spirals from there potentially. And then we're all it is a, then it's a big problem. Mm-hmm. And it's it's completely not fair, but it's just the way it is. Again, not the way it is all the time everywhere, but it is more the case than not. Right. right? So there's present moment. That's how we tend to that. And it, but when I was doing that work and I actually got to my, the journey to my children started with me doing that work because of people that I knew and mm-hmm. relationships I had and sort of halfway there, you know, I grew up a, a very sheltered, pretty, pretty sheltered and, and pretty well to do, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, I didn't have a lot to worry about in that regard. I, I think that as I was becoming more and more aware, as I dove, dove deeper and deeper into social justice work, I, it was so incredibly it was like I couldn't even really process it all because it was so antithetical to what I believed to be true. It was different. It was a completely different reality than I understood. Mm-hmm. And to get out of, so I had to go through that grieving process too as a young professional in my twenties, and then get that out of the way of other people's experiences because who cares what I think, right? I mean, <laughs> just you know, my job is to be an advocate and an ally and to listen mm-hmm. and shut up. My job isn't to be out there. You know, saying, well, my heart is broken for you. Like, they don't care if my heart's broken. They, they're people that need help out there or people yeah. who need avoid, who need allies, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. It also comes back to this idea of, of resentment and gratitude because there are people who were like me who said, wait a minute, I don't really see this as a problem. Why are you making this a problem? Well, we hear that a lot. Why can't we just all keep going? Well, because, oh you're, because your reality isn't the same as this person's reality. They're not mm-hmm. the same. So I can appreciate your reality is yours and you're allowed to have that. And also if you're going to choose to engage in the world as a, cause I work with, with leaders in that, that regard, I was working with people who own businesses or up and coming and they're coming through this training of leadership. And we're saying, this is the leadership you need to understand as part of your leadership. You need to be aware of these issues. And they're going, but that's not, that's not true. Quite literally. Huh? Like, right. Oh they really had no idea because it wasn't part of the reality. And so like, so I saw many people either tell me that, you know, well, I don't want to talk about this. This is nonsense. I don't see color. It's a big one. I don't see color. Yeah. Um, and then other people who would have the same experience that I did, which was completely fall apart mm-hmm. because they just didn't know. And they couldn't, they couldn't believe that they didn't know. And then, and both of those kind of polar opposites trying to reconcile how I, how do I be a leader of people when, when my reality is challenged so much and then kind of come through that process and say, okay, well, I don't have to know anything. All I need to do is listen, ask questions from a genuine place, uh, you know, be, be intentional about my words, 
be willing to make mistakes, be willing to apologize for my mistakes, be willing to be an advocate and ally when I'm asked to be, or when I see an opportunity to be, and when I am asked to stand down and stand down. Yeah. Right. And by the way, go run your business and, you know, make sure that your investors are happy and make sure that your staff of 300 or a thousand or 10,000 are happy. I mean, so that's, it's a, it's a big ask yeah. and it's what the work we need to do. Right. I'm always torn. That part of me says it's not, it's more a conscious ignorance i'll say that you're just choosing to ignore these things are happening mm-hmm. around you mm-hmm. as opposed to your reality you just weren't shown it do you what do you how do you feel about that i think that we're conditioned a certain way as we right so so for me i mean i, I was i'll tell you what i you know growing up in the 80s we were doing a lot of feeding ethiopian children mm-hmm. right which is beautiful Right. We are, we would, as a school, we would get together and we would bag rice and beans and we'd send it to Ethiopia, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah. But we weren't doing that for our neighbors. Right. We were doing, we were in California sending it to Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was shown as a child. Gotcha. You know, and, and I love my parents very much. They, they were not particularly interested in doing a lot of work around this. This is not part mm-hmm. of their, their purpose, their, their purview. So when I became aware I, I had, I, I think that the, you know, reality is, when I say it's not your reality, what I mean is that reality is all perception, right? It's what is the stories we tell about ourselves, what's happening in front of us or not. And we only yeah. see what we see is in front of us. So it doesn't mean that reality is, is the facts. It just means it is what we perceive. As yeah. So, so I think that we are conditioned a certain way. And I think that if we have a calling to think differently than the way we are conditioned, whatever that is, then we have to make some conscious choices around that. And we have to be willing to confront that our quote reality end quote is not the only one. Um, and, and were there neighbors of mine who were struggling? Absolutely. Were there people mm-hmm. down, you know, three miles away from me who were struggling to find meals every night? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it just wasn't what I was conditioned to understand as a young right. person. Okay. Yeah. So then at, in points of your undertaking, your what you, the work you do, there's, there's kind of an eye-opening exercise you must have to do with these people to say like it's not this is your reality that you're experiencing now because this is what you're seeing but if we can open your eyes and your senses a little bit there's more that's going on that is all of the work that i do okay (laughs) in some respects so as as a conscious leadership coach as as somebody who looks works with entrepreneurs to become to help them become conscious leaders right Mm -hmm. That all the consciousness means is waking up. Right. I'm going to become more aware of what is what I believe to be true. Is it actually true? Do I want it to be true for me? Mm-hmm. Do I want it to be true for me? Is it true that? I mean, I'll say right now, working with a client who most of our work right now is around his relationship with his significant other and his mom. Gotcha. He runs a five million dollar business. He's he's built it from the ground up. You know, mm-hmm. didn't go to college. He is a self-made person. He's running a really beautiful business. And he's got great staff. He's making great leadership decisions. He's got, you know, he's, he's doubled his income twice over the last two years. Like he's doing incredibly well. And that is the work we're doing right now. Because the perception of how I was conditioned mm-hmm. by my, and this is not blaming anybody at all. It's because we all come in, we all have this stuff, right? So not blaming anybody in one particular. But his relationship with his mother is informing how he perceives himself. Yeah. And it's the, it's the tape that just runs and runs and runs and runs and runs. So, mm-hmm. oh, it's not true 
that's that thing that she said to me before is not true. What really is true is this, or what I want to be true is this. So I'm going to mm-hmm. work towards making this true. Yeah. That's going to be real now. But that is incredibly difficult work. Yeah. I mean, and it's, I think it's an ongoing process. I don't think we're ever really finished with that. <sighs> Sorry, Trevor. I yeah. Well, I, I was hoping for like a golden we, we, key. You can choose to, you can choose to be finished with it if you want at any time. You never have to true. pick it up if you don't want to. Yeah. You can and you can always put it down whenever you want to and pick it back up later. Mm-hmm. And if we choose, we can always do more. I think that's what I meant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what you made me think of an opening uh, people's eyes question, Trevor, is like, um, I think often people wish that they could just show you facts and say like, did you know this percent of this many people have this problem? And that the listener would say, wow, now I see everything completely different. <laughs> now I, now I right. believe what you're telling me, right? But in, I guess that's, the rare case like that would be the easy way um in reality probably it's much harder to get people to see different perspectives how have you like this is the focus of a lot of what you've done in that area how have you come around to see is the is the most effective tools for you well the way i've been trained is is i guess we to we would call it a socratic method you know through asking questions and the, the whole idea um is I don't say the idea isn't quite right. The whole the belief the the value is that we all have the answers we need inside of us, and that sounds very like ah oh, we got the end of the rainbow. But no, truly, <laughs> we all come in with inner wisdom. We come in with things that we we know and that are intrinsically true about us. We know that we learn things over time. There are so many fun, fun studies. I think they're fun coming out about now about how like a gut instinct is in fact actually a physiological gut thing that happens. That you yeah. have a, we have a, we have a chemical reaction in our gut when we think that something is not right, because, and that's based on prior experience. Oh. Ooh, I'm noticing a pattern. I don't like that pattern, yeah. and I want to go right. That's I know. I think that's so cool. Uh, our brain is a miraculous and wondrous and mysterious thing, and it holds the keys to everything that we want. Truly, we just have to know how to get it out of there. Yeah. So questions challenge or they confront the things that we believe to be true how true is it that what 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 would be possible if something else were true right what if it were um what if instead of you feeling not worthy that you were worthy beyond your own imagining you just didn't see it yet mm-hmm. what would it be like if you were actually worthy of the thing that you want what would what would be true then and they go well i guess then maybe i could be successful and then i guess i wouldn't feel like an imposter and i guess maybe i would be able to really follow this dream of mine huh how does that feel well that feels pretty cool okay oh yeah but you know i really aren't i'm not really not worthy okay so then we think about there's that there's a pattern kicking back in right so yeah so it takes time to rebuild the pattern and to choose away from that pattern into a new one but it's all about awakening (laughs) and then and asking questions trusting the person in front of you that they actually know what it is that they need to know it's there's no i'm not giving advice or if I am, I say, would you like, you know, would you like me to put my consultant hat on for a moment and say, here's my no based on experience. You can take it or leave it. And they'll say yes or no, but mostly it's asking questions. It's like you're going the journey for yourself and, and for lots of yeah. other people, oh, right? Yeah. It's like you're going yeah. down the, all these journeys. That's so cool. 
Well, and the, the, the cosmic joke, I guess, or, or, or magic about all this is that we always say that whatever comes up for the client is also coming up for you. So there's a, there's a mm. vibration, there's an energy there about that conversation. It's like, whatever you need to know or learn in this moment is also what the client is learning, whether or not you bring it up. Right. But oh, it's wow. like, it's, it, that happens a lot. We attract people who are going to show us what we need to know. And so they've attracted me as their coach and I'm attracting them as their client. So we both learn. It's cool. So can you define kind of what is conscious leadership as opposed to the general use of the word leadership? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So conscious leadership is, or there's a whole movement around conscious entrepreneurship. So I'm going to put that in that same kind of bucket. And it essentially is, I'm going to be thoughtful. I'm going to be intentional. I'm going to challenge my own sense of what I think is true, what is possible. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be present to my uh, somatically to my body. I said, Oh gosh. So I'm in this really cool program right now. I'm as a coach, I need to do continuing education credits. And so I just joined this program for that purpose. And it's all about um, somatic coaching and like uh, in, in, transformation through embodiment was essentially like trusting your body to know what you need to know. Right. Or, yeah. And he said, the teacher that was, he was like one of the, the, the pioneers in this field. He said, that we become empathetic. And I'm going to butcher what he said, but it's something along the lines that we become, we, we experience empathy when we experience sensation and we experience sensation through our body. So right. think about that for a second, right? It's like walk a mile in somebody's shoes, but it's not an intellectual uh, exercise. It is a, mm-hmm. a person of color. I walk into a store, I get followed around the store, mm-hmm. right? Because people think I'm going to steal something. Yeah. Somebody like me in my shoes might go, well, that's never happened. But that doesn't happen. Yeah. I've never seen it happen. I've never done to anybody else. Who would do that, right? That doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it's never happened to me. Yeah. So let's say it actually happens to you. Well, then you're aware of I'm having this physical experience. I'm in this environment with this other person watching me. I'm, I'm suspicion behind me. People are looking over my shoulder. People are watching what I'm doing. People are saying, what are you doing here? Can I help mm-hmm. you with something? Right? Yeah. Not what can I help you with something, but can I help you with something? Right. Different tone of voice. And all yeah. of a sudden I experience that it goes in my body and I go, Oh, right. So empathy happens when we send, we have a sensation in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a powerful way to become conscious. So that's part of the work we do. Um, mm-hmm. I remember I said earlier, I was out of my body for the better part of 20 years or so. Yeah. Maybe more than that. And then I dropped into it. Most people are, especially in our culture. We're a very mm-hmm. intellectually driven culture. We want to think mm-hmm. our way through things. We don't want to do with feelings. <laughs> yeah. We were founded by Puritans. Puritans don't like feelings, right? <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> we like big hats and big buckles. We don't like feelings. So how is it in this moment, dear CEO of a multimillion dollar organization? Well, I'm not stressed. I'm fine. It's, just, it's, it's, that, it's that guy's problem. He's the one that needs to, it's, it's, he's the one who's got the attitude. He's the one who's got the, the problem, right? Really? Tell me more about that. What, where do you feel that in your body? What do you mean? I don't feel anything in my body. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Well, we still, you seem kind of angry. Or you, or, or you seem kind of, my, I'm getting from you that you're upset about something. I'm not upset. Really? Well, maybe I'm a little <laughs> mad. Okay. Okay. You're mad. So where do you feel mad in your body? Well, gosh, I guess I feel like, gosh, like my, my, my stomach tenses up. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So when you're mad, your stomach tenses up. Yeah. That must be a lot to carry around with you all the time. Oh. Then we get, yeah, and they go, oh, yeah. There's a new level of consciousness, Mm -hmm. right? 
Um, and that's, I mean, how many layers of that do we have? Oh gosh, infinite layers of those that we have. All, all of us have that. So by becoming a conscious leader, we are aware of the energy we bring to a relationship to that guy who I think he should be fired because he's got the problem. Oh wait, where, where am I mm. causing this, you know, uh, in this relationship? Where am I responsible for this? Maybe I'm responsible for my, my staff who is, tur- the t- turnover is high. Maybe it's not that I can't find good help and quote unquote, maybe it's that they don't want to work with me. Why wouldn't they want to work with me? What's wrong? What's going on going on with me? What are my values? What is my energy? How am I dealing with people? What are my priorities? Why don't they want to buy into what I'm selling here as a leader? Yeah. Uh, so that's part of conscious. And then also the next part of this is making decisions based on, I now I'm aware and I'm aware of myself and how I am contributing, influencing the energy around me and the, my relationships around me and the outcomes around me. So now I have more consciousness about that. The more conscious I am about that, the, the more different choices I can make. Mm-hmm. So I can change the outcome. If I want this different outcome, again, this outcome, I want this outcome. What do I need to do to influence that outcome? All right. And then it is, okay, then I, I start making conscious decisions and I start measuring those decisions, noticing the, how people respond around me differently. One of my favorite things to hear in the world is when a client comes to me and says, you know, I haven't told anybody I'm working with you, but just the other day, one of my staff members said, hey, you seem different the last couple of months. What's going on? You seem really more relaxed. You seem more at mm-hmm. ease. You seem like you're having more fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? on the wind board. So cool. That is amazing. I can yeah. imagine that, how rewarding that feels. It's super cool. <laughs> I'm like. So consciousness, being awake, and then leadership is about influence. So how are you conscious of your influence? And what are you going to do that? I guess that overlaps with the cultivating purpose statement. Mm-hmm. So what mm-hmm. do you do about it? So if we are conscious then we are, and we are sensing in our body, then we are aware of what makes us feel excited and joyful. We are aware of what makes us feel inspired. We can feel it in our body. <gasps> Inhale, right? My eyes go bigger. My hands start going. I'm like, that's for me. <laughs> yeah, I start to dance. Like, yeah, I'm so excited. <laughs> Right? Oh, this is some, this is important. I need to know what, what is this thing that's happening here? Wow, I didn't even realize how excited I was about this. I want more of that. That's showing me my purpose, my fulfillment, or part of it, right? I mean, again, you can un- unfurl this over many, many layers. Um, but if I'm aware of my body, if I'm aware of my feelings, my, my sensations, I'm aware of the energy, the influence, the feedback I'm getting from other people, from my environment. And then I start to realize, oh, that's that. Well, that feels better. I want more of that. And then I can start cultivating that purpose, that sense of joy. And I lean more into that. And it can be scary, by the way. That's really scary because it can be a big change for people. It's scary for me yeah. too. Usually, it comes like Tony Robbins said. You know, I think I think it's Tony Robbins that said, um, "Change occurs when the pain of staying the same is worse than the pain of changing." Mm-hmm. Or something like that. I may be paraphrasing, but anyway, you get the idea yeah. <laughs> that yeah. we don't want to change unless we have to, right. or there's something that's moving us towards that in a way that we don't want to. We, the pain is so great, we have to move away from the pain to do something better. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, when we become more aware of that, the purpose is telling us what our purpose is. The joy is telling us our excitement, our energy, our connectivity to other people. Mm-hmm. When other people get inspired by what we're saying, then we go, "Oh, cool." It's catching, yeah. haha, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> it's working. Yeah, it's working. I have a, this may relate to more people than just me, but I have a, I get tripped up with purpose because often it doesn't, 
I don't see the link between my purpose and how I earn an income and support my family. Mm-hmm. That's how a big do you, one. Do you link the two or is, oh, are gosh, they completely yes. separate? Yes. How do well, you Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I do. And that's, okay. what, that's what conscious leadership and conscious entrepreneurship is all about. Conscious business okay. is all about. Uh, and again, leadership not being about you're in the C-suite or that you have a fancy office or that you make a lot of money necessarily. Leadership is about influence, whether mm-hmm. and it's including yourself. So how are you leading yourself? How are you leading others around you? Right. Family included, dogs included, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, so it's not, you don't have to have a fancy job title to be a leader. Connection between how I make a living and how I live in my purpose, that is really, that's the kind of, if we can get that right, I mean, you've heard it said, I'm sure that, you know, if you can do, do work you love, you'll never work a day in your life. That's what that means. Yeah. yeah. And the things that don't feel like work are the things that actually, if we lean into, that's actually where probably our greatest prosperity lies for us. Yeah. Going back to me as an actor, I hated being an actor. I mean, for truly frank, I hated being an actor. I hated it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, so of course I wasn't prosperous at it because I absolutely hated it. Right. <laughs> it wasn't until I started finding out what it was trying to teach me that I started being more successful and not, and stop judging it as you are a bad thing, right? I, acting isn't a bad thing. Acting is a beautiful thing. And many people, many people are incredibly successful at it. Yeah. So it's not that it's not possible. It's just that it wasn't possible for what well, wasn't probable for me. Cause I was so, I had resentment about it. Yeah. But as I got more joyful, I got more grateful. And as I got more grateful, I got more aware of where my joy was. And I can, you know, and I'm still working on that. So for, for mm-hmm. if in your situation, as you're saying, you know, I'm, I'm tricking up, trying to figure this out. It's not really an overnight thing. Entrepreneurship specifically can often be cased as, well, you know what? You know, you know, max out your credit cards and sell your house. And you got to be willing to live on the street to be an entrepreneur. And I think that's BS. I don't think that's true at all. I think that we all have resources that we can leverage. We can do it in different ways. I also think that, the more you follow, lean into the things that make you feel good about who you are, the more fulfillment you will have. And, uh, and, and the more your radar will be attuned to those things. So just like my grand, my godfather, excuse me, who had no idea that that, that opportunity landed his lap, but he was open to new possibilities. Right. right. And he said kind of like, okay, well, I wonder what would happen if, yeah. and then somebody came into his life and said, here's this possibility. Do you think it makes sense? So it's not that we, we, you don't necessarily need to know how, in fact, you can't really know how it's all going to work out. Cause even if we make plans, they usually don't turn out that way. Planning, yeah. planning is important, but plans are pretty useless. So <laughs> that was once a trickle. When I, and I don't necessarily specialize in this moment when people come to me and say, how do I make that transition? But I've had it mm-hmm. myself. Yeah. And I've certainly worked with other people who had it, many, many people. And there is a risk involved. You said earlier, you know, you grew up thinking, well, I have to have a job. And the thing, the risky thing is to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And where mine was the opposite, right? Yeah. So it is a risk against your quote reality end quote, and I'm putting it on the spot a little bit just because you told me that story. But anybody's reality is that it's risky to do that thing, yeah. and I can't possibly do that thing because, well, then I would be letting people down, or what would people think of me, or what if I fail, or what, or what, what if my, you know, what if I can't feed my children, or what, right? All the things that we cascade through, all the worst yeah. case scenario, which is what we're how we're going to do, and ultimately. The thing that will take us or the, 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 the thing that will take us across the gap that will bridge the gap for us is faith in fulfilling that purpose. All right. In the more I lean into this purpose, the more it will, the more I serve the purpose, the more it will serve me. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, man. Um, and that's a tremendous leap that we have to, that we take uh, when, no we're, when we're doing this work. Yeah. So, and for me, uh, it's um, like, but the time, there's time. Like, there's only, I only have this much time to do it because I yeah. only have this much in my bank account or whatever. Right, you put right. Yourself on a limit, and then that adds the stress of how long is Which it going to take for my purpose to repay me? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So then, so that's when that's when coaching comes into play because that's when we say, yeah. okay, let's make, let's make some strategy so that we can look at your what what beliefs are you putting in? Like you say, I have only have a limited amount of time, so I only have this much money. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, have you ever in your life been able to say, I'm going to get more money? Has that ever been true where you can say, oh, yeah, I just going to go more money. Has that ever been true? Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay. So, so you, you have, you're resourceful. You could earn more money, right? If you needed to. Yeah. Okay. So we don't worry about that. <laughs> where do I sign? Where do I sign up? <laughs> I say, I really love the idea of how you express, uh, you connect purpose with how you feel, uh, like how your body feels. Uh, because recently thinking about that, it's like, we align, I don't think, I think it makes sense a lot to align your purpose with what you do every day, but that doesn't, I think it's too easy to get tricked up into uh, making that a label, like this career or this literally right. this job at this company is my purpose. And, and it's broader than that. Like it's, Correct. it's down to you and how you feel and you express it through your work, then that's awesome. And you express it through yes. your family. That's great. And you express it through your other right. things in your life. That's awesome. But it's not that that specific thing is your purpose. It's, it's, the, it's not I, the only thing. It's not exactly. the only thing. It is one, yeah. one expression of a bigger purpose. That's correct. And my husband and I have this conversation all the time because he thinks I'm crazy. He thought I was crazy. It isn't anymore. When I first started <laughs> this out, he was like, he's like, what are you talking about starting your own business? And I was like, I can't not do this. And he's like, but my work isn't my purpose. I just go and like get the paycheck. And that's what I, my purpose is serving you as a family. Like that's what I was like, okay, cool. Well, lucky me. Um, but he, but he was, but he, truly my husband and I am so grateful for this. He, he hundred percent believes and, and knows in his heart that his purpose is being the best man he can be, the best partner he can be, the best father he can be, the best neighbor he can be. That's what, and, and he has come to that through a pretty miraculous story of overcoming some major obstacles and also some pretty great teachers over the years too. So mm. he does not share my, my, I have to work in my purpose. Like that's something that drives me, right? Not, it doesn't yeah. drive everybody. And also I will tell you that, and he's had a, a, he's now changing jobs and he's worked at a wonderful company the last 10 years. And it's been a really beautiful experience. And now he's changing jobs into a different company, a much larger company and it's going to, and it's much closer to his heart. Gotcha. And there are some choices that he is making that we are making as a family to make that, that are, I don't know, I don't want to be too specific because I don't want to out him, <laughs> but I'll say that we've, we're, making, we're making some adjustments yeah. so that that's possible for him. Because even though he believes that all day long, his job is not his purpose. He's finding that going into a position where his passions are going to be more around him every single day mm-hmm. that actually it's going to elevate him as a professional. Yeah. So while that specific job title is not his purpose, he's realizing that that is really important to him. Mm. Um, and, and, and through, through this journey of the last 10 years plus, and really longer than that, of trying to figure out what it is that really is really important to him. He was able to find this position, which is kind of a unicorn sort of situation. Yeah. 
but because his radar was tuned to it after many years of asking questions, what is it do I really want? What is it do I really want? Yeah. Not, oh, not that, this. Oh, not that, this, right? So yeah. now he's finally able to find his thing. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. Your purpose is all of you. Your life is your work of art. And you can express your purpose and your creativity and your inspiration any way you choose. It doesn't have to be through work. It can be, though. You get to do that if that's what you want to do, but you don't have to. It's a lot of pressure. <laughs> no kidding. I had a flashback to it. Uh, the last time I left, I was very, I always had conversations with my wife. I hated because she was right and it made me uncomfortable. But she would always, like, I would come home and say, my boss did this today. My boss did that today. So it's like, he won't see. Why can't he just open his eyes and see what? what he needs to change in himself and he needs to do mm-hmm, it. And, my, mm-hmm. and my wife would say, well, what do you need to change? And I would just, I'd like clench yeah. up. And say, <laughs> Nothing. I'm perfect. He's the one who has to change. You're married but to a very smart, smart woman. <laughs> I am. I am very lucky. Um, but it was on the days that I went into work with the intention of, I'm going to, I'm going to send my light out. And I'm going to inspire people. And like you said, you don't need a job title to be a leader. Uh, mm-hmm. I really took that on on some days. And it was amazing. The work was amazing. I had a great day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wouldn't come home and complain about my boss not doing the same. I would just be focused on me. But I don't know if there's a question in here at all. I just kind of wanted to state that I've experienced that firsthand where it's so easy to find external reasons and blame other people for why things are happening. And the hard work comes when you look inside yourself mm-hmm. and you say, these are the things that I need to work on and everything else will change. My reality, in quotes, will change if I can become one it, with myself. It, yes, and also you, the, your possibilities will open up. Yeah. So. If you're in a situation, if a person is in a situation where you're going and your boss is a, is a not a conscious leader, yeah. <laughs> without saying anything else about that, um, and is not willing to, to meet you, right, and have a conversation with you and look at himself or herself or themselves, yeah. and it, there's only so much you can do, Yeah. right? So as you become, so in this case, you decided to be an entrepreneur, which was you change your situation, right? That mm-hmm. The pain of saying the same was, was greater than the pain of changing. Yeah. But other people might look at that and say, okay, I've done all the work. I've learned everything I can here, mm-hmm. right? I, I think I've learned all the lessons I need to learn here. And so what other opportunities can now be available to me now that I think I'm ready for the next lessons or the next set of right. lessons? And then, you know, I'm, I'm going to use the word with my tongue firmly in cheek and say magically, it's not magic. It's just, it's just where we are paying attention that opportunities mm-hmm. present themselves because we are right. open and we are paying attention to them. And that's actually neurological, uh, neuroscience based. I love the fact that you've created your family through, through adoption. And um, is there anything that you wish people would think about when they think of adoption or, or, or know that maybe it doesn't come up enough? Oh, um. That so the things that I was ta- that was trained and taught that I learned coming to adoption, you know, and I had people say things to me like, "Oh, you're going to tell them they're adopted," or "This is I mean, my son's 18 now, so this is this is kind of old school thinking now." But I still hear it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the core of adoption is loss. It's loss from the birth parents or birth mother, 
maybe both parents, depending on how involved they are, uh, mm-hmm. and loss of the child of their birth family, right? And there also may be loss on the on the part of the adopted family too. So that's really important to be aware of of where, as an adoptive parent or foster parent, where you are in dealing with if there is loss to be dealt with, to be to be conscious of that, to make sure that you are not trying to fill a hole with a, with a baby because yeah. it's, it's not fair. And mm-hmm. our job as adoptive parents is to be not only the best parent we can be and also be imperfect and love that child, though those children, but it's also to hold space in their life for the possibility or the very or the reality of them having a deep and meaningful connection with their biological families. That is our job. And most people don't take that, don't understand that, don't take it seriously, read it off, think it's, you know, or they think there's some shame or why would you want to do that? Any of that, right? That is our job. And my children are my children, 100%. There's no question about that. And they're also the biological children of other people. And we have different relationships with the different people that that hold those roles in their lives. That's something to be, to be really, really clear about as an adoptive parent. That the healthiest thing that we can do is to honor our role as their parent 100% and also their connection, whatever that connection is, even if it's very slight uh, to their birth families. Um, I think that one thing that I hear or heard a lot too is, oh, like I, I was... Um, at my job, I was questioned, you know, do you, well, why do you need maternity leave? You didn't mm. give birth to that baby. Right. And I was like, well, well, I'm not going to the baby store and picking one off the shelf and to put it in my purse and take it at home with me. Like, yeah. we're talking about a matrix of lives yeah. that is happening in this moment. Mm. And uh, to honor that is just, it's the, it's the most important thing about being an adoptive mm-hmm. parent, I think. It's beautiful. Thanks for sharing. Mm-hmm. Merit, you are amazing. You've said a couple times that you're not a genius. I would say in my definition of a genius, you definitely <laughs> are. Uh, you are so inspiring. You've done incredible work, I can tell, just in the two-hour conversation that we've had. And I'm so grateful for you coming on to the show and sharing everything that you shared with us. So thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. Awesome. Yes, I'm, I'm so grateful. Thank you for the work that you all are doing too. It's, it's really important and I appreciate you. It's our pleasure. It's our purpose. <laughs> That's, there you go. <laughs>